Amen. I tell you what, we declared some awesome truth together, didn't we, this morning already? You know, that our God is greater, uh, that our God is stronger, that, that our God is higher than any other, and that the Lord, that he's our rock, and, and that we don't have to be afraid because he is with us all the time. Man, I'll tell you what, I, I needed to worship today. I, I don't know about you, I, I woke up under the weather. I know why I shouldn't be under it, you know, uh, but I wasn't feeling too well. Uh, but I tell you what, praising God and those reminders just make me feel really good. And, and Maple Grove, it's time for chapter 20 of the story. Uh, the queen of beauty and courage in a conversation that I'm calling perfectly positioned. And, and, and I'm excited today uh, because uh, the book that we get to read from was literally breathed by God. And, and, and this book, it's, it's living and active. It's, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And this book, it, it's useful to, to teach us and correct us and rebuke us and, and to train us in righteousness so that you and I will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, and, and this book, you know, when, when we read this book, when we hear from this book, you know, we are literally hearing the voice of God. It's God speaking to us. I mean, this book, we hear the voice of the creator. And, and I'm excited because I know that if you and I, if we have, you know, if our ears are open and our mind is open and our heart is open, we will hear God, creator God, speak to us this, us this morning. And so the question is, do you want God to speak to you this morning? Do you want to hear his voice? Because if you do, he, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Guaranteed all the time. And again, we're in chapter 20 of the story. It's the, it's the book of Esther. And Esther is one of my, my favorite books in the Bible. Esther is one of my, my favorite heroes. And, and the book of Esther, if you were to put it chronologically, it kind of fits right in between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Two weeks back, because we took a pause for Father's Day, two weeks back we saw God's people returning home from, from exile and they began to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And some people stayed in Persia and, and the book of Esther takes place then amongst the people who remained back in Persia. And some of the main characters you, you encounter in the book of Esther are uh, King Xerxes. He's the fifth king of the Persian Empire. He's in the third year of his reign, which began in 486 B.C., after the death of his father Darius I. Uh, Xerxes was, was a man focused on power, on conquest, and on pleasure. We also uh, meet a queen named Vashti in this story. Uh, she only appears in the opening chapter in Vashti is a woman of character and conviction. And, and then we'll meet a guy named Mordecai. Uh, he's a Jewish man whose family was exiled when Jerusalem fell. He's Esther's cousin, and he's been raised in Esther ever since her parents died. And, and, and Mordecai, he's a man of integrity and a man of faith. And of course, as Esther, she's, a, she's an orphan girl being raised by Mordecai, and she's a woman of both inner beauty and outer beauty. And then er, every story needs a villain, and, and this story has a villain. His name is Haman. He's dressed in black. He has, he's wearing a black hat. He, he's a number two guy in all of Persia. And he's a man who's consumed with himself and he's full of hatred. And, and, and what I, I want to do is, is I want us to, to look at this story scene by scene. And as we do, we'll, we'll pull out a, a few quick lessons along the way. And, and then we'll settle in at the end on a final point uh, that I'm calling perfectly positioned. Perfectly positioned. And because... We're going to see that 
some of these characters in the story, that they were perfectly positioned to be used by God, even though at the time they may not have felt like it. Uh, the phrase perfectly positioned is defined this way, is that place where perception triumphs over circumstance. That, that place where perception triumphs over circumstance. Uh, let's pray. Father, you're our rock. You're our hope. You're our fortress. Father, you're more real than the building that we're standing in or sitting in right now. Uh, Father, you are all-powerful. You're all-knowing. You see everything. You know everything. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And God, even in life where sometimes we... We can't see you the way we want to see you. God, we can be confident that you're always on the move and you're always working. And God, even if we don't like where we are right now, God, we can be confident that because of who you are, we are always perfectly positioned, God, to be used by you for, for you and for your glory. And, and God, God, I pray for open hearts and minds today, Lord. I, I, God, God I, I pray that you help me say what you want me to say, God. I don't want to get in the way. Uh, God, and God, help me to, to speak for an audience of one, for your applause, and, and not the applause of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, scene one, I, I call the party. It's called the party. Peter, re, repeat after me, the party. Okay, I have this real weak, see. I told you I was under the weather, and so I'm like, I'm needing some, I'm needing some love, y'all, all right? You got to show me some love today, all right? Okay, scene one is the party. Say the party. Whoa, that's some love, serious love. All right, as the scene opens up, King Xerxes, is, he's in his capital city. He's been king for just three years, and according to the Greek historian Herodotus, he was planning on invading Greece in two years. His dad tried seven years earlier, and he was defeated at the Battle of Marathon. And to set the stage for this event, Xerxes throws this huge party to let everybody know how great, how awesome, and how powerful he was. Esther 1, verse 4, for 180 days he showed off his wealth and spent a lot of money to impress his guests with the greatness of his kingdom. And that's never a good thing, right? You know, to try to show off and impress other people. And, and, and here, here's a clue. You know, if, if you are different, if you're a different person depending on who you're with, chances are you have the same problem, right? If you change depending on the people surrounding you, maybe you have uh, the Xerxes syndrome of, of wanting to show off and impress other people. And I think you'd have to call Xerxes the ultimate party animal. I mean, he's throwing a party. Uh, some estimated it's a group of about ten to 15,000. And did you notice how long the party lasted? Six months. Now that's a long party, six months. And it, when that party was over, he threw another party for a week, seven days, in the enclosed garden of the palace. And and this party was wilder and crazier than the first one. It, it was Fort Lauderdale at spring break. And, and, in fact, the main purpose of this party was to get trash. Scripture says basically that he had an open bar 24-7 for a solid week. And so you see the picture. This, there's this crazy party going on. And on the last day of the party, Xerxes, no doubt drunk, comes up with this great idea. He's thinking, you know, everybody's fixing to go home. And, you know, I, I want to... I want to show off one more thing to impress everybody. My wife, she's so beautiful. And so he sends his servants to get Queen Vashti. And now traditional Jewish interpretation is that when he's told his advisors to, to go get Queen Vashti um, with her crown on her head, 
that the crown would be all that she would be wearing. And so what this king is asking his queen to do is to come and parade around drunk in front of... Y'all good. Prayed around naked in front of his drunken buddies. That's what I meant to say. But what do you think she did when she heard this? She refused. She said, hey, basically take a hike. She wasn't about to be gawked at by a group of drunken men, and she wasn't about to allow herself and her king, who was no doubt drunk, to be disgraced. You see, Vashti, she was a woman of conviction. Even though she knew the price would be high, she said, tell the king, no can do, I'm not coming, I refuse the king's request. Well, when Xerxes hears this, he's totally ticked off, and he asks his buddies, what should I do about this? And they say, you know, if you don't do something about your wife, eventually our wives are going to hear about it. And then things will really get out of control in the empire. And the last thing we need is a country full of angry women who don't know their place. Bro, you need to punish your wife, take her crown, and issue a decree that wives are to listen to their husbands and that the man is the one who wears the toga in the house. So they, so they remove her crown, issue a decree that all women are to listen and to respect their husbands. It's as if they think that they can demand their wives to respect them, but that's not how it works. Lesson number one. Respect is not something you demand, it's something you must what? Got to earn it, right? The next scene I call the pageant. And it takes place nearly four years after the end of chapter one. And in intervening years, Xerxes, he takes his navy, goes to Europe to try to defeat Greece. Again, something his dad couldn't do, but he doesn't do much better. He's defeated there. And, and matter of fact, there's a movie several years back about it called The 300. And the Greek historian Herodotus says that Xerxes came home from that defeat and he sought consolation with his harem. In other words, he, he, he tried to numb his, the pain in his life with sexual sin. And by the way, people still do that today, right? And it doesn't work. Lesson number two, I, I've said this one a lot from, the, from this platform. Sexual sin always takes you further than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay. Well, shortly after this, Xerxes decides that it's time to find another queen, and his buddies suggest, hey, why don't you go to all the 127 provinces of our empire, and pick out the most beautiful virgin you can find, and we'll have a Miss Persian beauty pageant. And let the one who pleases you be the next queen. And if you need somebody to judge the pageant, we're here. We, our schedule is totally open. And it's here that we see the upper story of God begin to unfold. Esther is chosen as one of the girls from her province. Mordecai, her adopted father, says, hey, keep the fact that you're God's people. Keep it hidden. Keep it to yourself. And regardless of the odds, Esther would win the pageant and become queen. And not long after she became queen, Esther got her stepfather Mordecai a, a government job, sitting as a judge at one of the palace gates. I guess some things never change, right? And and one day, while, while Mordecai is sitting at his post, he overhears two disgruntled employees talking about uh, their plot to assassinate the king. Mordecai sends a note to Esther. Esther tells Xerxes. Xerxes has the two conspirators killed. And then he records this incident in official records and gives credit to Mordecai. And, and, and I need you to move your mouse over and click save because we're going to open that up a little while later. 
Scene three is the plot. In this scene, we meet Haman for the first time. And, and you see the king fearing for his life. He, he did a massive shakeup of his, his government, and he instituted an obnoxious politician by the name of Haman to be his right-hand man, the prime minister, second in command to Xerxes himself. And Haman, he was an arrogant guy, and he demanded that everybody that walked past him was to, was to bow down as he walked by. And everyone did except for Mordecai. He was a Jew, and Mordecai was committed to God, and he said, you know what? I'm only bowing to God. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, now the guys who worked near Mordecai and bowed down got a little upset. Hey, if we have to bow down, if we have to eat our vegetables, how come Mordecai doesn't? And they would ask Mordecai, how, how come you're not bowing down? And he didn't tell them, but eventually he says, I'm not bowing down because I am a Jew. When these guys find this out, they quickly run. They tell Haman what's going on, and Haman flips out. And when he hears that, that, that Mordecai was a Jew, his head spun around. You see, Haman hated the Jews. They were the most stubborn people he'd ever encountered. All the other conquered nations would bow down before their leaders and their gods, but the Jews would only bow down to their God. And so Haman decides, well, I'm going to go see for myself. Is this really what's happening? And Haman walks by Mordecai, and Mordecai, he refuses to bow. And Haman's reaction is recorded in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Since he had learned that Mordecai was a Jew, he decided to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. And the first thing he did after making this decision was he, he gathered together all his personal astrologers to cast lots to, uh, to see, uh, determine the day for implementing his plan. And the lot fell to the 12th month, the 13th day. And I, for one, think that he didn't like how that turned out, right? I mean, to wait a whole year for his plan of ethnic cleansing? Question. Who do you think caused the lot to fall as it did? Proverbs 16.33 says this. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I understand. Our God is sovereign. The one we pray to, the one we came here to worship, is in charge of capital E everything. Sure, the world may have its kings and lords, but he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. No one is as great as our God. I, I was at Virginia Beach with my family on Thursday and the ocean is like really big. And, and Justin and I were saying, and we're only seeing the surface of it, right? We're not even seeing the whole thing. And, 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 and then I, 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 made it, I took my palm and the hollow of my palm and I tried to put some water in it. And I, was, I said, man, Isaiah says that, that God holds the oceans the oceans in the hollow of his hands. You see, the God we pray to, he is sovereign. He's in charge. He's the boss. He's Lord of all. And because he is, whatever you are going through, God is over it. And he can bring you through it. Because our God is sovereign, because he's in charge, right? That means he is over it. Whatever you're going through, he's over it, and he can bring you through it. Amen? Amen. That's good news. I understand. We're never in a situation that, that, that takes our God by surprise, that, that freaks him out, that, that takes him off guard. And, and, and no, it, 
It's never too big for him. He can handle absolutely everything. Well, after Haman does this, he goes to Xerxes and he sells the king on issuing a decree to kill all the Jews. And the king signed an irrevocable decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews, men, women, and children were to be killed and all their possessions plundered. And here's where we need to take it off the flannel board, right? Okay, I mean, like this is, these are like real people. And, and could you imagine if that happened in our country? That if we all go home and, you know, all our TV is interrupted, our radio programs interrupted, saying it zooms in the Oval Office and it's a president. And he just says, hey, you know, with, you know, we decided with America's best interests and national security in mind that on December 13th of 2013, every Christian man, woman, and child is to be killed and all their property plundered. I mean, if that was really happening, that would be, like, terrifying. And this was really happening, seen for a purpose. When Mordecai and the other Jews hear about this, they, they tear their clothes, they, they put on sackcloth, and they, they weep, and they cry out before God. And eventually, news about Mordecai being in such stress, it, it, it reaches Esther, and Esther doesn't even, at the time, know what's going on, and she sends her servants, hey, take these clothes to Mordecai and have him put these clothes on. And Mordecai, he's just too, his sorrow is too deep. He won't put those clothes on. And, and so she sends her servant back again and find out what's going on. Why is, my, why is my cousin, why is my uncle, why is the one who's taking care of me in such great distress? And, and Mordecai tells a servant what's going on. He says, look, I have a PDF right here. Here's a copy of the king's decree and what's going on. And he tells a servant, I, I want you to tell Esther, Esther, you need to go to the king and you need to plead for our people. And so the servant returns and he tells Esther, you, you, need, to, you, you need to go before the king. And, and Esther is like, I, I can't do this. Because you know, everybody knows that if you go before the king and he hasn't asked you to, it, you know, it could be a death sentence. And it's been 30 days. I mean, I haven't got a text. He hasn't tweeted me. He, he, he hasn't made a post on my Facebook. He hasn't called me in 30 days. And if I go before the king, I, I could lose my life. She was afraid and with good reason, right? She saw what happened to Queen Vashti, right? And, and, and at least at this point, nobody knows she's a Jew. And if they find out, she's got a death sentence on her, right? And, and, and and not only that, she knows going into king's presence could mean death. But Mordecai hears her being hesitant, and he, he says these words. We've all heard these. Again, real people. You, know, you cut them, they bleed. You hit them, they bruise. Do you think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. He's basically saying three things to Esther. Number one, Esther, don't think you'll escape the Holocaust when it comes. Esther, you will be wiped out just like everybody else when it becomes known that you're one of God's people. And number two, Esther, if you refuse to step up, God will use somebody else. And man, I love Mordecai's understanding of God's sovereignty. You see, he knows that God will accomplish everything he intends to accomplish, regardless of Esther's involvement. Sure, Esther is important, but she was not indispensable. Bottom line, if Esther refused to seize this moment, she would miss out on the opportunity to serve God, to save his people, and to bring God glory. But she would not and could not tie the hands of God. 
His will will be done. His purpose will advance with or without her. And lesson number four, you and I will never stop the plans that God has in this world, but we can and often do forfeit the awesome opportunity to be a part of it. You see, God wants you and I to be involved in his redemptive story. But we are not indispensable to his plan. It will go on with or without you, with or without me. And the third thing that Mordecai was saying to Esther in his statement was, Esther, God has put you exactly where he wants you to be. Esther, you may not understand how you got here, and you might, may not even know why you're here. You may not even like being here. But I want you to know, Esther, that you are where you are at this very moment so that God can accomplish his will through your life. Lesson number five. God wants to use what you have, where you are, right now, for him. So that he can accomplish his will through your life. God wants to use what you have, where you are, right now for him so that that he can accomplish his will through your life, even if it's not really where you want to be. When Esther hears those powerful words, I mean, her faith and courage kick in. And she instructs all the Jews in her palace and all the Druze throughout the empire to join her for three days of prayer and fasting. Lesson number six. Prayer and fasting are powerful, divine, godly weapons, especially when we do it together. You see, Scripture says that that we don't wage war as the world does, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. For the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And when God's people come together in prayer and fasting, it demolishes strongholds. And you see, Esther knows that, hey, this is too big for me. I can't do this by myself. I need help from God, and I need help from God's people. And so do we, right? We need God, and we need each other. And question, are, are you trying to do life or overcome trouble on your own? As Dr. Phil would say, right? How's that working for you? How's that working for you? And probably not too good. You know, this past Thursday, and we're going to be doing it for 1322, you can email Steve at maplegrove.org. Always have any complaints for the service, that's randy at maplegrove.org. <laughs> Encouragement is steve at maplegrove.org, okay? Just so you know where to send things. Um, yeah, but we're meeting about being the dads we want to be and holding accountability, you know, at 6 a.m. on Thursday to 7 a.m. on Thursday because, you know, we can't do it alone. What are the steps we can take to be the dads we want to be? Esther tells Mordecai, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I mean, her boldness. She says, I'm going to do it, and if I, if I perish, I perish. You know what? It's worth it. If I die doing what God wants me to do, I'm going to do it. And scene four ends with thousands of Jews in the city and Esther and her maids in the palace, all in humble prayer before the sovereign king. After three days of fasting and praying, Esther goes for it. She goes for broke. She takes her chips and puts them all in the middle of the table. I mean, you can hear her heart beating, right? As she begins walking down that corridor. And she's praying flare prayers the whole time, right? 
Lord, be with me. Lord, help him extend the golden scepter. Help him extend the golden scepter. Help him see gold. Help him see gold. Help him see gold. She walks in, approaches the king. He smiles, extends the golden scepter and says, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Tell me prayer and fasting doesn't work. Now, apparently during the time of prayer, God, as he often does, revealed to Esther a plan for saving her people. And that plan did not involve making the request right then. Instead, she told the king, I would like to have a special banquet for, with just you and Haman. And so the three of them share a meal. And after dessert is served, they, the king once again asks Esther what she wants. And you can feel the suspense building again. And, but she just says, hey, this was fun. Can we do it tomorrow night? Have another meal together? And see, the timing wasn't right. And I tend to think the Holy Spirit was like speaking to her, saying, hold on, stop. It's not a good time. And you know what? I had it happen to me many times. I remember one time in particular, I was meeting with this guy doing coffee at Starbucks. I needed to confront him about something in his life. And, and, and I'm listening. We're at Starbucks for the third time now. <laughs> you know, I hadn't done it yet. And the fourth time we're there, and I'm getting ready to do it. It's, it's time to confront him with this. And I just felt the Holy Spirit put a huge stop sign in front of me. I go, okay, because the enemy wants to say, okay, am I, am I wussing out here or is it the Holy Spirit? You know, how, how do you figure it out? And, and, and a minute after I, I saw that stop sign, he began to share with me how when he was a young boy, he was molested. You know, I'm thinking, you know what, if I didn't listen, you know, if I had to push my agenda, you know, so God, we always have to listen to the Holy Spirit, right? He speaks, you know, he's alive. He, 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 he wants to help us. Now, what do you, how do you think Haman's feeling right now? I think he's feeling pretty special, right? I'm a special person. There's no one like me. I'm so glad I'm Haman. That's my name. That's me. Right? He's, just, he's just so excited. You know, Scripture says he went out happy and in high spirits. He's so happy. And then he walks and he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't bow. And Haman immediately starts to lose it. But he quickly calms himself down. He says, hey, I'm pretty sure he's going to be dead anyhow. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. So he goes home and he calls all his friends and family together um, and tell them, to tell them about his rise to the top. And halfway through his self-promotion party, you know, he stood up on the kitchen table, cleared his throat and said, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. And she's invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. Then he added, but all this is meaningless. As long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace. Now that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, who here would ever do something like that, right? I mean, who here would ever allow one person or one circumstance to steal our joy and cause us to forget all the good things that are happening in our lives, man? Who would ever do such a thing? Lesson seven. I need this one. Maybe you do. Refuse to let one person or circumstance cause you to forget all the good things in your life, man. You know, one thing, we're here today, right? We're not in ICU somewhere, right? I mean, we're breathing. We got people who love us. We got a church we can go to. We live in a free country. And if we're a Jesus follower, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, right? You know, oh yeah, but I didn't get the parking spot I wanted. Well, Haman's wife, he's just still whining, complaining, and they're kind of tired of him. All right, Haman, just, just knock it off. Send your servants out to Lowe's and build a 75-foot gallows and ask the king if, if you can hang Mordecai on it tomorrow. He goes, okay, I think that'll make me feel better. And, and scene five closes with images of Haman sleeping restlessly and the sounds of a hammer building a 75-foot gallows. And if this were a TV show, 
it's where we read, we see the words to be continued. Chapter 6, scene 6, God's plan. You see, Haman was the only one having trouble sleeping that night. Xerxes couldn't sleep. And I don't know, maybe he ate too many tacos at the queen's banquet. Um, but whatever's going on, the bottom line is that this is not a coincidence. This, this is God unfolding his upper story. This, this is a case of God-induced insomnia or Holy Spirit heartburn, right? It's God's upper story being played out. And he couldn't sleep. They didn't have NyQuil. They didn't have melatonin or Tylenol PM. And he says, I really need some sleep. Hey, could you bring in the minutes from our last meeting? <laughs> you know, if anything will put me to sleep, let me read the minutes. You know, you know, minutes and sermons, right? You know, you know, and... and and he's, he's about to doze off, and they hear, wait a second. Here's about this guy, Mordecai. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, did we ever do anything to honor this guy? They said, uh, no, no, we did nothing. He goes, well, we, we need to take care of that. Okay? Well, not long after this, in, early in the morning, Haman arrives, so he can be first in line to talk to the king about ah, hanging Mordecai. And it's, it's, tell me God's not cool. <laughs> and, and, and so... The king asked Haman a question. Hey, you know, what should be done for somebody the king would like to honor? And Haman, you know, I'm a special person. There's no one like me guy. He's like, I know he's talking about me. Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I would take one of the robes you've worn and one of the horses you rode. And I would get one of your highest servants to, to lead this man out on the parade. And have this person shout, this is what's done for the man the king delights to honor this is what, and he's, he's just picturing himself on, oh, it's going to be incredible. You know, I'm going to put these pictures on Facebook as soon as I get home tonight. And the king goes, that's a great idea. Now you go do what you just said for Mordecai. He's like, that is, and I can just picture, can't you? This is what's done on the man. I mean, he's just had a terrible day. He goes home, still whining. By this time, his wife and family, you know, we're, hey, dude, knock it off. You know, just leave Mordecai alone. We're tired of it. We're tired of the same song and dance about Mordecai. Knock it off. Just leave him alone. It's going to end bad. And there's a knock at the door. They're coming to take him to the queen's banquet. And chapter 7 reads this way. I got to read the whole thing because it's like a roller coaster ride. You can't just be told about it, right? You got to get on the ride yourself. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked, Queen Esther, what's your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Haman's probably thinking, well, I bet she wants to do something special for me. <laughs> then Esther answered, if I found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request. I just would like to live. For I and my people have been sold to, for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would, not have, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would have justly justified disturbing the king. I wouldn't even bother with you. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, there he is. <laughs> and then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up and you ever been ticked off? You just got to get up and you're like, okay, I'm going on the balcony. You know, I may throw some furniture over the balcony, but it's better than throwing someone over the balcony. And he, and, and Haman's realizing, okay, I'm in big trouble here. He makes his way over to talk to the queen. He trips over the Persian rug in the room. 
He lands right on top of the queen. So he's laying on top of Esther. Just then the king walks in. <laughs> the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in my house? As soon as the word of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. <laughs> Bad day. Then Urbona, one of the eunuchs, said, hey, I was driving to work today. I was driving by Haman's house, and he's got this beautiful gallows, 70 foot tall. I mean, it looks really good. Pressure treated wood and everything. And it's, it, he was using it. He was planning on hanging Mordecai on it. And the king says, hang him on it. So they hang Haman on the gallows. He prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. The prologue. In this scene, we see Esther and Mordecai walking together in a palace garden. The sky's blue. The birds are singing. The sun is shining. As they walk together, the falling facts scroll across the screen. In the days following Haman's execution, Queen Esther was given all of his estate, both land and property. King, Ex King Xerxes issued a decree written by Mordecai that saved the Jewish people. There were great celebrations held among the Jewish people throughout the empire. Joy flowed like a river. And scripture says, because of all that happened, many Gentiles turned to God. And Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews who held him in highest esteem because he worked for the good of his people and was a friend at the royal court for all of them. And that's the story. I love the story of Esther. Which brings us to the next point in your notes. Perfectly positioned. Remember I said earlier, perfect position is that place where perspective triumphs over circumstance. In, in, in July of 2010, I was invited by Mike Shirley, a, a friend that God had dropped into my life in the most unusual way at, at the most important time. Don't have time for that story. But he invited me to attend a conference at his church, Discovery Church in Orlando. It was a Friday-Saturday conference called Perfectly Positioned. Now, at the time, I felt anything but perfectly positioned. I'd just gone through the, the, the worst year in ministry ever. And in July of 2010, I found myself 50 years old, four months unemployed, and barely hanging on physically, emotionally, spiritually, and financially. However, I remember leaving the first day of that conference totally intrigued by the concept of perfectly positioned. I even bought the book. And even being perfectly positioned, even when life feels anything but. And, and, and that night when I went home and, and, and I prayed and reflected on this concept of being perfectly positioned, you know, it hit me how... 14 years ago to the very day, you know, July 21st, 1996, I was perfectly positioned even though it didn't feel like it. You see, on July 21st, 1996, my first wife, Judy, was dying of cancer in ICU at Tampa General Hospital. And as I reflected on this concept of being perfectly positioned, 14 years later, I wrote, on the, I wrote these words on the front page of this book. Dad... I hear your voice so clearly. And I write for God. I don't think he really cares. Just like him talking to me. Steve, if you were perfectly positioned then when your wife's dying, and you were, I mean, now you do see the bigger picture, then Steve, you are perfectly positioned now. Believe it, it'll change your perspective, which will change everything. Everything. Maple Grove, because our God is sovereign, 
And his purposes are constant and unstoppable. No matter where we are or what we are facing, we are always, we are always perfectly positioned to be used by God and for his glory. Even if it doesn't feel like it. Abraham and Sarah were perfectly positioned to father a nation when they're in their 90s and infertile. Joseph was perfectly positioned to be used by God when his brothers threw him into a pit. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were perfectly positioned to be used by God when they stood outside of a fiery furnace that had their names on it. Paul was perfectly positioned to be used by God as he grabbed his pen, leaned against a prison wall, and wrote the letter of Philippi. Peter was perfectly positioned to be used by God when the rooster crowed for that third time. Because our God is sovereign and his purposes are constant and unstoppable, no matter where we are or what we are facing, we are always perfectly positioned. And in chapter 20 of the story, we see three people who are perfectly positioned, even though they may not have known it or liked where they were at the time. Queen Vashti was perfectly positioned to take a moral stand. I understand, she knew that, that her morals would have been compromised had she walked into that room full of drunken men and she refused to cross that line. Question, do you need to take a moral stand in your life or in a relationship? Is someone, maybe even you, trying to get you to compromise your sexual morals? Don't do it. Take a stand. Hold your ground. And listen, if you've already crossed the line, ask God for forgiveness, make a fresh commitment to more purity, and move forward in his mercy and his grace. You, you see, because of the finished work on the cross, even when you and I are caught in the grips of sin, we are still perfectly positioned for a comeback if we repent because of God's mercy and God's grace. Yeah, you may have fell this weekend, but you're perfectly positioned for a comeback for the king. Mordecai was perfectly positioned to take a spiritual stand. You see, because Mordecai surrendered his life to God, he wasn't going to bow to anything but God, no matter what. I understand, as we live in this world, the world like Haman will walk by and they will expect you and I to bow. They're going to expect you and I to bow to possessions. They're going to expect you and I to bow to the pursuit of popularity, to the pursuit of pleasure. They're going to expect you and I to bow down to our culture, to worldly wisdom, to worldly success, to worldly values. And like Mordecai, we have to say, we will have no other God before us. We will not bow down to them or worship them. Esther was perfectly positioned to take a courageous and influential stand. You see, I think one of the greatest lessons from the story is that God has placed each of us in positions where he can influence others for their good and for his glory. Our God is sovereign. He knows where you are. He knows who you are. He knows what you have. And he wants to use it all for his glory. I mean, who knows? Maybe God has placed you where you are right now. At that school, in that job, in that neighborhood. Maybe God, God has placed you in that circumstance right now for such a time as this. 
Maple Grove, God wants to. Maple Grove and Steve, God wants to and God can use what we have where we are. And don't say, well, down the road he can use me. No more excuses, right? Well, down the road, no. Where you are right now, even if you don't like it, even if you don't want to be there, God can use what you have where you are right now for his glory. And listen, every one of us in this room, in this building, in this church right now are perfectly positioned. We're perfectly positioned to play a role, to be a part of God's redemptive story. You see, it's not an accident that you're in the room today, right? God didn't bring you here to warm a seat, right? He didn't bring you here to be entertained. He brought you to this place at such a time as this so that you can join with us to lift up the king in his glory, in this place, in this community, in this state, in this country, in this world. You're here for a reason. And the king of kings is offering you and I an invitation. He's not going to force himself. He says, hey, do you want to be part of something that's bigger than you are? Do you want to be part of something that will outlive and outlast you? Do you want to be some, part of something that is powerful and eternal, something new and alive? You, you see, you know, captives will be set free. Good news will be preached to the poor. The broken hearts will be mended. Light will penetrate the darkness. Good news will spread across the earth. Nations will hear about our God. Disciples will be made. The hungry will be given food. See, all these things are going to happen. God's church will prevail. The only question is, will you and I be a part of it? Will you and I be a part of it? You're here for a reason. God brought you here to help us change this world for him. And I want to just close with this statement you see on, on, on the screen. We are always perfectly positioned to be used by and for God. No matter where you are, right now, where you sit, not a month from now, not, not later this week, not next year, but right now. You're perfectly positioned. You know, if you're caught in sin, God says, you know what, that's all right. You're perfectly positioned for a comeback with my grace and my glory and my power and my spirit in you. Right? You're perfectly positioned right now, no matter what you're facing. And, and we're, we're going to sing a song right now, you know, uh, about, you know, I stand. You know, a song by Hillsong. And I pray God speaks to you through it. And if you need prayer, our elders are always off to the side. They're available after church to talk and pray with you. You know, and, and I'll tell you, if you don't know the Lord, if you've never surrendered to him, you've never been buried in, in, in the watery grave of baptism, baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and get the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, you are perfectly positioned today to walk forward and say, you know what? I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. Would you stand and pray with me? God, we love you. and God, I thank you for Esther, and I thank you for the truth that, that I am perfectly positioned right now to be used by you. God, help me to stop making excuses. And come to the banquet today and feast on you and your glory and your kingdom and your truth. And Father God, I just pray that everyone in this room, God, as we sing this song, we declare to you that we're going to take stands for you. Maybe someone needs to take a moral stand or, or a spiritual stand or a courageous stand or an influential stand. God, help us to stand for you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.